If you had kids right now and you were like, well, what do I want my kids to go into so that they will be successful in life, right? And you'd think like law, medicine, politics. Yeah, um, engineering, something like that. You, you need to understand that in ancient Greece, that's what rhetoric is. Welcome to the Good and Basic Podcast, a long-form conversation with Joseph and Joseph about the videos on our channel and all the other very, very thinky thoughts we're thinking. The thinkiest. Yes, uh, nothing thinkier. So uh, you can find our social media information, podcast, YouTube channel, etc. in the show notes and or video description wherever you happen to be listening to this podcast. Thank you very much and let us jump right in. Um, so we wanted to talk about so the, the last four videos, right? Very, uh, very philosophical videos. Yes, very general. philosophic videos. And so we actually have to outdo ourselves just a little bit today and amp up the philosophy, right? Because we do project videos a lot and then talk about the philosophy of them, right? Now it's philosophy videos and we just have to like... Uh, expound put it put it up to a factor of or to a to an exponent of two so uh, it's over nine thousand yeah (laughs) yes the the philosophy in this video is going to be over nine thousand probably so uh, rough themes with the videos we did one on the logos politicos which is a political speech and the 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 reasoning process that we are engaged in as a society at any given time Mm -hmm. we did one on the Anne frank house and about the unfortunate uh correlation between lying on an individual level and the society that can uh, that, that led to Nazi Germany and Nazi yeah. Holland. Um, and then we did one on cities and whether or not they are better than not cities. Um, <laughs> jury's still out on that one. Yeah. Um, uh, and then the last video is about uh, good conversations, the value of having people who you can talk to and who you can discuss ideas with. Yes. Um, so how are these things all connected? And Joseph, how are they related to the classical rhetorical curriculum? Yes. So thank you. This is exactly where I want to go to because this, this is a thing I've been obsessing over for like, I, I would say about a year and a half now. Possibly longer. Possibly longer, depending on how you measure things, right? Um, so, okay. So I mentioned I mentioned in the Locos Politicos video that a lot of these ideas, right, this, this whole idea of civic discourse and how we're communicating with each other, you know, not only, but largely goes back to the Greeks, right? And largely goes back to their democratic experiments, right? Yes. And to this idea that, okay, well, if if we are all going to be involved in the decision-making process, then all of a sudden we have to be convincing a lot of people. Yes, and it's also, in in a very practical sense, the reason why Greek, uh, particularly Athenian uh, parents, wanted to have their children raised with a high-class rhetorical education Mm -hmm. is because that is the way that you gain power in a democracy. Yes. Is based off of the exchange of ideas, can you convince other people to mm-hmm. do that thing that you think is a good idea? Yeah. And, and so it puts an absolute premium on what's, the, what's well, what we would call rhetoric or the rhetor's art, right? The what speaker's art. What is convincing? Art. What is uh, persuasive? Um, yeah. And so this, this also starts off a major debate. One of the things that I want to mention is, is building on that, right? So, so like if you can imagine if you had kids right now and you were like, well, what do I want my kids to go into so that they will be successful in life, right? And you'd think like law, medicine, politics, engineering. yeah, um, engineering, something like that. You, you need to understand that in ancient Greece, that's what rhetoric is. It is it is the hottest discipline, the hottest field of study, the hottest profession. This is what you go into in order to become someone. In fact, I think it actually more closely maps onto business, onto the modern idea of business than, than anything else. Kind of um, vague, but universally yes. applicable. Uh-huh. Like you can take it anywhere. Yeah. Uh, this degree offers a lot of flexibility, which is a code word for we don't know exactly where it fits <laughs> if you are yeah, a very well, technically minded person. And, and this is something 
yeah, when you if you go talk to business majors and try to get them kind of in, in Socratic fashion, try to get them to pin down exactly what it is that they do, um, they'll often have a hard time with it. Yeah. Right. Uh, because it's so it's so indefinable, so squishy, so so soft skills oriented. So there are yeah. hard skills like learning how to use Adobe InDesign, where mm-hmm. it's like I, I know how to use the program. Mm-hmm. There's hard skills like, uh, for example, can you play the guitar? Yes or no? Or can you tie your shoelaces? Mm-hmm. Yes or no? Where it's like yes or no. There's a binary here. And then there's things like rhetoric, mm-hmm. which are soft. They're on a big spectrum. Mm-hmm. Can you ever? Uh, is your rhetorical ability so good that you can convince anyone of anything? No. So can you convince people? Well, kind of. You're somewhere in this space between mm-hmm. I can mind control and slave through my voice and I am an island to myself when I can't interact with mm-hmm. people. And the question is how do you push closer to I am convincing than, uh, than the island mm-hmm. option? So, and, and part of that softness, right? Like, well, and... You know, some people, if you well, or, or like think about law, right? Um, you know, in some respects, law is a very noble profession. In some respects, it's a very ignoble profession, right? Um, and the same thing is 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 true with businesses. Depending on who you talk to, they can have a very high opinion of it or a very low opinion of it. So the same thing is true in ancient Greece, where whatever it is that the rhetor's art is, whatever this rhetorica techne is, um, it's not. Th- there's a lot of different opinions, not only on its value but also on, like, what exactly it is. Yes. Um, and this is where Isocrates comes into the picture contrasting with Aristotle. Yes. Um, so Aristotle it, will mostly say that rhetoric is that which is convincing. If, you're gonna, if you can convince the other guy, that's rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the more common model that we use today. But recently there's been, we've been rediscovering an older and yeah. more interesting tradition. Yeah. Well, and I would even, I think, I think a good way to think about it is actually that there's, there's, well, let's see. How should I tackle this? Because I would say that there's – it's a pretty fair way to think about it. That there's actually four different schools of rhetoric in ancient Greece, four major uh, veins of thought about what rhetoric is and what it does. Um, and they, But they overlap in weird ways. So uh, let's see. Um, well, here's here's one way of thinking about it. Is Here's a couple of questions. Is, is, is rhetoric concerned with underlying truth? And um, the sophist answer is basically no. There's, there's, there's nothing there. And so therefore no rhetoric is just, anyway. uh-huh, yeah, yeah. And there's no underlying truth here. There's, there's no better, there's no worse. And so rhetoric is just a verbal wrestling match in which we seek to throw the opponent and overcome them. Yes. Right. Um, and Plato has the same opinion of rhetoric. The difference between him and the sophists is that the sophists say, well, so let's all get very good at rhetoric so that we can be the one pinning our opponent to the mat. Uh, instead of getting pinned. And Plato's opinion is, well, no, that makes that makes rhetoric irredeemable. In in Plato's view, there is no such thing as a good rhetorician. And there's a funny pun here in that Plato wasn't actually his real name. Plato was his uh, wrestling name oh. back when he was a <laughs> champion wrestler as a young man. Uh, I, I'm not kidding. You can look this up. Broad shoulders, right? Plato means broad-shouldered one. It was his wrestling name. So there, there's That's a funny connection really cool. there. That's actually really yeah. cool. Um, Aristotle has a much more sanguine view of rhetoric, uh, well, in some ways than Plato. Aristotle is Plato's student, of course, and Aristotle sa- basically says, well, yes, like, the only thing that rhetoric is concerned with is, is persuading people. It is just a wrestling match. It's a verbal wrestling match. But we can use the verbal wrestling match in the service of the truth. So we can find out the truth with philosophy and then use rhetoric to convince everybody. The so truth. the first two models, model one, the sophist, is mostly might makes right. Yeah. Or might, right is relevant, might, might, might. And yeah, then that's that's a closer way of putting the, it. The the second one is might for right, more or less the King Arthur view, where mm-hmm. uh, you know 
being able to win the battles could be a good thing as mm-hmm. long as you're advancing the right cause. Yeah. So then there's this fourth school run by a guy named Isocrates, and he's the most important Greek philosopher that you've never heard of. Um, and there's been a resurgence of interest in Isocrates in rhetorical circles over the last uh, couple of decades, but uh, it's well, it's still very much underway. Um, but uh, roughly speaking, and, it, and it's a little tricky because whenever you find a new ancient uh, person, you find their writings and it's like, okay, what is it exactly that they're trying to say? And people still disagree about what Aristotle was trying to say, right? And so, so these things can all be a little bit tricky. But I think the, the way that Isocrates would say it, right? So Aristotle is going to say, well, let's find out the truth with philosophy and science and then let's use rhetoric to persuade everyone else, right? So he would say that the role of civic discourse is uh, basically propaganda and you can use that propaganda well to convince people of the truth or you can use it badly to convince them of lies. Um, but Isocrates is going to say something more like, society is one giant collective brain and everybody in the society is a neuron in that giant brain and we're all firing off of each other and bouncing off of each other all the time. And that is an engine that is slowly moving toward the truth. Correct. So individually and collectively, we're all epistemic engines and that, that operates through rhetoric. So rhetoric, in his view, isn't the thing you do after you find the truth. It's, it's epistemic as well as persuasive. Okay. Epistemic meaning that it related helps us, to finding the truth. It helps us find out the truth, not just convince people of the truth after we found it, right? And that's very much how conversations, including this conversation that we are presently mm-hmm. having work. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we both, you know, we both have ideas. And we both speak those ideas, but mm-hmm. they modify each other in real time. Yeah. And, and that is a really interesting thing. And if we're honest and both keyed into perceiving truth or at least being able to recognize better and worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know a good argument or at least you know a better argument than one, another one. Mm-hmm. Um, we are both feeling our way towards the truth at any given time and rhetoric can be a process by which we get closer to it. Uh-huh. And all of that, as far as I can tell, is contingent basically upon the honesty principle, which is uh, roughly speaking, you know, as Jordan Peterson would say, tell the truth or at least don't lie or at least don't lie very much, right? Which brings us back to the Anne Frank thing. Um, but yeah, I think, and, and that's one of the ways that I think you can tell if you're having a real conversation with people is if they're modifying what they're saying as they go and if you're modifying what you say as you go. Yes. Um, you know, I, I mean, think about it, right? Like if you're talking to a script on a computer, one of the ways that you can tell you're talking to a script on a computer is because it doesn't change what it does because of what you do. There's a very interesting thing here in that the, the, the sophists and Aristotle and Plato would all say that talking to a script on a computer is a worthless activity because the receiver is not willing to change an opinion. They're not open. But, uh, you know, you could be extremely hypocritical in that they see the receiver and the speaker as being very distinctly different. One can be running a script, Mm -hmm. but the receiver has to be at least partially open. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny to me that rhetoric is an inherently moral activity, or at least conversation Mm -hmm. is, because we recognize the difference between winning and losing. And there are, so if I, if I make a, if I'm in an argument with someone, right? Um, Let's say I'm arguing with a hypothetical nihilist, somebody who says that there is no such thing as right and wrong. Um, If they make a breakthrough case. They, they make the perfect argument. They uh, show me all the data and they there's no denying it. Um, are they saying that I should change to their point of view? Mm-hmm. Yes, they are. I mean, that's the obvious implication. The act, the act of rhetoric, the act of trying to convince someone proves that you think that they, if convinced, would be morally obligated to accept the other point of view. Mm-hmm. And that is a fascinating thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So it's, it, it becomes two-way. The first three models all see it as kind of a one-way thing where there's the speaker and then mm-hmm. the, the receiver is the one that has to do all the modifying. Mm-hmm. But uh, if we're honest about it, then there's going to be modifying on both ends. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's also, uh, you know, one of the coolest things that I think Isocrates ever said was uh, there's this quote of his that the same arguments that you use to persuade others are the arguments that you use to figure out things yourself. Because you are not one person. Mm-hmm. You have multiple voices in your head, more uh-huh. or less, yeah. different parts of yourself, different desires, different sets of things. And in order to make decisions in your life, mm-hmm. you need to kind of work it out, mm-hmm. by which you mean have conversations with yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you're considering a big decision, one thing that maybe you've done in the past is to make a giant pro list and a giant con list. Yes. Right. And, and then you f- functionally what you're doing there is you're setting up two attorneys in your mind who are going to each argue the pro side and the con side and some of the best reasons in favor of that decision and the best reasons against that decision. And then presumably if you have an attorney for and an attorney against, you also have a third person in your head, which is the judge, which mm-hmm. is going to say which one of these two arguments mm-hmm. is more convincing. Yeah. Or, you know, maybe even the attorneys will. Uh, I mean, this doesn't happen in real courtrooms, obviously, but actually the, the attorneys it does. I mean, I assume it's fairly rare. Um, but yeah. the 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 uh, right the two oh, attorneys in your mind can actually uh, end up coming to the same conclusion. You know, right? an interesting thing about that in particular going to law school. I'm presently very interested in this sort of thing. Um, if you look at the number of cases that are actually resolved in court, the number is like four percent, which means ninety six percent are dealt with via out of court settlements. Mm-hmm. Or the, the court is mostly the threat that you use in order to make the settlement actually happen. Mm-hmm. It's saying that we have beef with each other and let's see how much we can agree before we have to bring it before a judge. Yeah. And the answer is 96% or somewhere mm-hmm. about somewhere in that neighborhood. And it's a similar thing with uh, the criminal law system. Uh, the vast, 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 vast majority of things are conducted via plea deal, um, negotiation outside of the actual mm-hmm. courtroom. So, I mean, this sort of uh, active uh, give and take rhetoric is very much a part of the way the legal system actually operates. Yeah, it's an ongoing negotiative process, right? Yes. Um, or going back to last week's podcast, it's a game, yeah. right? Uh, Isocrates would construe civic discourse as as something of a game that we're all playing um, and that we're all trying to figure out how to make it a good game together. It's a game where we're trying to define the rules in real time. It's very much like being five years old and at the playground, you know, uh-huh. you have the game where you're pretending to be such and such and you have the mm-hmm. one kid who says, and then you say this, yeah. and then that you say, well, I don't want to say that. Mm-hmm. And then the ga- the rules for how the game operates, especially if you watch five-year-olds, they all crown themselves king at various moments mm-hmm. of how the game operates. Mm-hmm. And you'll have one that kind of can't let go of that position. Mm-hmm. They want to be the one defining how the game operates. Mm-hmm. And you have to negotiate this thing back and forth. It's mm-hmm. a fascinating problem. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of Calvin and Hobbes, and so I tend to call games where the rules change mid-play Calvin ball. Yeah. Uh, it's just a great analogy. Well, but uh, this isn't that dissimilar from how stuff in the real world works, right? Um, I mean, if if I have an idea for this great new business, I have to go convince people to play the game with me, right? I have to convince people that I've invented a game that is the kind of game that would be fun to play. In order to get employees or business partners or anyone else yeah. on the same page, you have to be mm-hmm. part of the same story slash game. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is true like when you're making friends or when you're dating is you're inviting people to join a game with you. Uh, yeah. And so, well, you'd better invent a good game. <laughs> yeah, a stable game over time, a game yeah. that is still worth playing after 50 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we want to take just a quick break to tell you a little bit about Audible. Um, we're really happy to sponsor Audible. It's a product that both of us use and uh, love a lot. How much do um, you love Audible? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, a lot. And, and enough to pay the membership fee each month. The membership fee gives me 
um, a credit that I can use on a book. I also have access to two free Audible originals each month. Um, I also get a discounted sale price on all books, and then I also get occasional sales, which are awesome. Every time it happens, I end up spending more money, which is terrible, but then I have more books, and so I'm very happy. It's not a bad thing. Um, so it all works out I, really well. Very similar. Uh, I finally uh, bought a yearly subscription probably last April, and that's been really nice. I get a lump sum of 12 credits once a year, um, which I then ration, and it, this year it lasted me less than four months. Mm-hmm. So. If, if you yeah. just if you just give in and join Audible, it will be so fulfilling and will make your life so Actually, much better. Uh, the link that so. <laughs> we posted in the description here allows you to try it out for a month for free. There's mm-hmm. no connect, no strings attached. You can quit after that month. Mm-hmm. You don't have to pay anything. So and you get th- one free audiobook with your purchase that you get to keep, even if you cancel the membership. So you can go so listen that's a good thing. to Nassim Taleb or any of the other people Jordan that you Peterson want to listen to. So or, many, yeah. so many good people to listen. to. I don't to, think so. they have Hilaire Belloc yet, but we'll talk to them. Uh, they have a lot. They have yeah. something for everybody, and I know because I feel like I have very eccentric tastes. A and they books. have a book on samurai proverbs. So there we go. There's my eccentric taste right, right there. there. Fair so, enough. Uh, back, you can go to audibletrial.com slash good and basic to get that free trial. Thank you so much. Um, so, yes, um, back, to, back to the Logos Politicos. Back to the Logos Politicos, to this uh, giant conversation mm-hmm. that we're having at any given time. So one thing I want to point out is that it implies a massive amount of faith in the in the decision-making, reasoning, and so forth, the, 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 the decision-making ability and the good judgment of everyone in that society. Yep. Everyone in that society is a pillar of the state on which the whole state rests. And so it becomes incredibly important in any sort of place where you're operating with Logos Politicos, it becomes incredibly important that you and I and everybody else are making the best decisions we know how to make. And uh, that's, that's the yes. way the whole machine, because it's an organic thing, that's the way the whole machine runs is by having every piece run well. Yes. Um, I, I am deeply interested in this uh, public virtue. Uh, I'm going to use the term public virtue. Um, th- th- this problem that, uh, oh gosh, this is such a big thing. Um, you have, uh, in order to get the Logos Politicos, every, every single individual agent individually has to be making good choices, mm-hmm. right? In order to make the conversation work. Uh, similar things happen for society in general. So, I was going to say, any one, any one person in a conversation can sabotage that conversation pretty darn fast. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and it's not hard. And you've all seen it happen. Yeah. And you, you may have been the one who made which it happen. Means everyone has veto authority, mm-hmm. which is a terrifying thing. Or maybe you don't have total veto authority. Let's say you go to a sporting game. You have a lot of veto authority. A lot of veto authority. You go to a sporting match, uh, you know, massive stadium, how many people in that stadium would it take to make a massive, horrible disruption? Not very many. Less than five. Like, if you were to bring in uh, air horns at the inappropriate time or to uh, start fist fights or to... I mean, I'm not going to give you ideas here, but yeah. if you wanted Use to... Use your imagination, ruckus, kids. It wouldn't take that <laughs> many people. We're not giving you advice And on that. yet, and yet, uh, you go to sporting matches and they generally flow well, mm-hmm. which means you can have collections of you know, 10, 15, 30,000 people in one concentrated spot where everyone has veto authority and no one is using it. Mm-hmm, because they've all decided this is a good game. Yeah, well, yeah, hopefully. In the case of sports, maybe literally a good game. So. Very, very much. Uh, although in that case, there's two games. There's the game on the field that you're watching and the game of watching it, which is what yep. fans are doing. Yep. Um, yeah, they exactly. have to decide that that's a thing exactly. we're doing. Exactly. Another one is the road system. Um, the road system to me is just a, a beautiful thing because... How many people would it take to cause life-threatening, horrible, nasty uh, conditions on the road? Um, Mm -hmm. Everyone has veto authority for the safety of the roads. Mm -hmm. Every single car is walking around, is driving around with veto authority. 
or the ability to cause horrible, nasty disruptions. I mean, if you parked your car broadside in the middle of the highway, you could stop the highway until someone forcibly oh, removed yeah. you Oh yeah. for an hour or two. I mean, mm-hmm. you could do that, mm-hmm. um, but you don't, and neither does anyone else. And mm-hmm. for the most part, it flows. Now, that doesn't say that there aren't disruptions and there aren't people who, you know, cut you off in traffic and all these things, but the, the amount, they have to be rare in order for it to function at all. The fact that it functions at all proves that they are insanely rare. Mm-hmm. And that's an incredible thing. Well, and this is something that we end up returning back to again and again on the podcast and in our videos is the fact that like independence is really awesome. But there's also so many things that you can do that uh, uh, there's there's also so many things that you can't do alone that you can do in a group. Right. Um, so, for instance, we ran across this when we were visiting Hadrian's Wall. Is you one person building Hadrian's Wall ain't going to happen, guys. Um, yeah. So, well, maybe the Logos Politicos is the way that you can navigate and that yet, and maintain some modicum of independence, but also it's how you get can the have benefits a, of, of, of working with other people. It's how you can have a functioning collective that is still composed of individuals. That's the idea. Yeah. Where, where individual... This is where it starts getting really interesting. One way of describing this um, is... <laughs> is to say that systems or games are dependent on something that we can call virtue, something that we can call public virtue. And by that, I don't mean like virtue signaling and saying I'm better than you. It means the self-restraint that is generally accepted among all members of the game, Mm -hmm. where they all individually, and I mean this incredibly individually, you don't spread public virtue many people at a time. It is literally one person at a time. This is is a, a general trend of composed entirely of individuals uh, is that willingness to play the game Mm -hmm. and to play by the rules and to play nicely and to not exercise undue veto authority and to not disrupt. Mm -hmm. And it's incredible to me that um, in in some societies, uh, well, well, here's the thing. You have police, right? You have the Leviathan in order to try to catch the stragglers. You have road cleanup crews to stop that one car that decided to stop in the middle of the road. Um, You have some of that, but you never, ever, ever have a Leviathan big enough to stop no. even a tiny percentage well, of the population deciding to go rogue. And this is this is an idea that's well known in economics, um, the, the necessity of the unenforceable, right? Yes. You, you cannot have enough police to, to keep things running. No. Nope. Um, what you actually do rely on is, is on individuals making good decisions. Which means that the, the glue, and I, I mean this as the only glue that holds any political system together, is uh, individuals restraining themselves. Well, and I want to comment also doing positive good things. And doing positive good things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... It, it's, yeah. It's both. It's Broadly speaking, it's, it's their ability to exercise good judgment. Which is a crazy thing, which means similar to a run on the bank. One person uh-huh. running to the yeah, bank yeah. and getting all their money out is not going to kill the bank. Enough people being panicked at the same moment. Yeah. Um, similar sort of thing. If you had enough people uh, opting out of this public virtue, uh, civil discourse... Logos Politicos thing, it shuts down, which means that the value of uh, moral education, of uh, encouragement, of I, I don't know, the value of of public virtue cannot possibly be overstated. And then the very tricky business is how do you get it and maintain it, mm-hmm. and or fix it once it's gone bad. Mm-hmm. Well, and I again, this is one of the reasons why I think it ends up coming back to the tell the truth, don't lie, or at least don't lie very much, which I personally generalize into. Uh, do the thing that you think is the right thing to do, or at least don't do the things that you think are wrong, or at least don't do the things that you think are wrong very much. Yeah. Uh, that is, I'm extending it from speech up to action too. 
Um, right, but uh, what, what's the proper locus of decision making? And the answer is as much as possible the individual. Yeah, because and that's and that's true not available. only in terms of technology. That's dare I say true in terms of everything. Yeah, I don't think that this there is no political system that can escape this because every political system is going to be composed of individuals mm-hmm. fundamentally. I mean, even if you describe yourself as a collective, how many people does it take to disrupt it? Um, Mm-hmm. So that it stops functioning. And then you have things like free rider problems where everybody's paying into, you know, mm-hmm. a fund. And then uh, how many people free riding does it take to drag the whole thing down? And mm-hmm. the answer is not one, not two. I mean, you can get by with a few. Mm-hmm. But any time that sort of morality becomes generalized beyond the barest fraction of a percent, it will shut down the whole system. Yeah. Which means you don't let that thing start, not in your heart, <laughs> ever. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's an interesting thing. Well, so there are, are a ton more things that we want to talk about in regards to. I mean, I've literally been sitting on these issues for like one and a half years and haven't figured out the right way to get them into Please videos. But hopefully, videos. hopefully they're coming around soon where we get to talk about more about Isocrates, the greatest Greek philosopher you've never heard of. The and Logos the education Politicos. system he developed to develop the right kind of speaker in the Logos Politicos. Yeah. How do you become the kind of person who is contributing meaningfully mm-hmm. to the pursuit of truth convincingly? powerfully, mm-hmm. well. Individually and collectively. Yes. All at once, harmonizing across all levels. So, well, hopefully we can all look forward to some of that in the future. Wait, wait, wait. I need to, I need oh, to tease, okay. it, tease it. I'm okay, teasing okay. it. Okay, okay. Go ahead. Go So ahead. this go is ahead. the education that Shakespeare had. Yeah, this is correct. This is correct. This is the education of Shakespeare, Milton, all these, uh, all these You can even find it in Benjamin Franklin's education. You yes. can find traces of it that survived it. Mostly got knocked out in the Enlightenment. Um, the rise of uh, Bacon and Descartes and the new empirical science uh, pretty much wrecked the classical rhetorical curriculum and it mostly did not survive. And then you get into the 20th century and the last uh, death book nails were thrown in. I mean, yeah. that's when we replaced the scholastic method with the Socratic method in law school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So not good. Not good, Bucko. But hopefully there will be a lot of good videos about this coming up in the future. Did we, did we tease? I mean, well, like this is what Cicero did. Like this is what Isocrates, or excuse me, what Socrates would have been educated in, Right. I, I can never figure out for sure if Isocrates and Socrates are on the same page, but Socrates definitely would have been educated in this model. It's the same thing that educated Cicero. It's the same thing that educated all the famous Romans you've ever heard of. Um, dominated the Renaissance and, and the late medieval era. So, uh, eh, well. Old school. Yeah, super cool stuff. Get it? Super cool. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. It is a very good, Joseph. Very good. <laughs> okay. All right. So with that, we're going to cut the podcast a little short this week um but uh we hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you soon so thank you very much i thought that was good yeah was it your favorite podcast we've ever done actually was really good it was good it was good it was very solid i enjoyed it it was very solid and we cranked it out with a reasonable degree of speed too